All right. Good morning, everybody. Good morning. Oh, Dorsey's here. Hi. All right. Turn your Bibles to Matthew chapter 5. And I, know I just called her out. Um, my friends Mark and Dorsey are here from Creekside in California. It's been a, a joy to, to host them and have them visit us up here. Uh, Mark said he hasn't uh, visited me in a couple of years, and I've only been here a couple of years, so what a friend. <laughs> um, I, I love that I get to be here with you this morning. And um, Matthew chapter 5, we're going to read this today, and we're going to close out our series, our, our One Month to Live series. And I know that um, I've had a lot of fun with this series. I've had a lot of fun unpacking this. I've been challenged in a lot of ways, and I've really, really enjoyed the small groups that came along with this series. Um, if you weren't able to join us for the small group cycle where we met here, I know it was different this time, where normal small groups meet in different people's houses. This time we all met here, we all ate together, and then broke up in different rooms throughout the church. But if you were unable to join us for this, um, you missed out on something really fun. And not just fun, but something really special. Um, I know that my small group was the best, but we had great leaders. And we have, you know, all the leaders were great. I heard great feedback from the leaders, from the people that were in the groups. It was a great time together. So if you missed this cycle, we're going to do another small group cycle coming up that will be kind of the, the normal cycles where we meet in different people's houses. There's adventure groups and different things that go on. But that will start um, after Easter, and we'll have information come up on what those look like. And there's a lot of different kinds of studies, but my, my hope and prayer is that if you haven't been involved in a small group before, that you really do get plugged into a small group. Small groups are vital to, I think, church health, church growth, personal growth. Um, an incredible amount of life and connection happens in small groups. Um, the ones, I know that our group here, that we, my group on uh, Tuesday nights here, we shared uh, food, we shared laughter, we shared some life stories, we shared tears, and there was some real life that happened. And I know that I feel personally closer with everybody that was in my group, and those relationships will go on past small groups. So if you're new and visiting, or if you're newer to the church in general, get connected to a group. That is the best way to get to know people and to really feel plugged into what we're doing here. Be on the lookout, join a group, don't miss out. And another fun fact, um, the healthiest churches in America, and I don't mean the biggest, largest mega churches, but the healthiest churches have healthy small groups. So get involved, be connected, and it's, it's the best way, I think, to really be challenged to grow and meet new people. So open to Matthew 5. I'm going to pray for us this morning as we come to the end of this uh, series, and um, I'm expecting God to do great things for us today. Would you pray with me? God, thank you for today. Thank you that we get to uh, dive into your word and really close out this One Month to Live series together. I pray, God, that you touch every heart, that we're challenged today, maybe even convicted in some things that we need to change or shift um, in our lives to put more of the focus on you, less on us, God, and that we live fully the way that you've called us to live. We thank you, we love you, and everybody said, amen. amen. All right, how many of you guys had a problem getting up this morning? That, that alarm went off and you were like, oh, where did my hour go? <laughs> my hour of sleep. And what's funny is for those of you that have kids, in the fall, you know, we set our clocks back. But if you have kids, that doesn't matter either. They still wake up at the same time. You're not getting that hour. So, so you're, you're messed up on either end. You're losing an hour and you're, you're not gaining anything on the back end. But I'm glad that those of you that, that braved that hour of sleep or losing that hour are here with us today. Now, we were challenged in this series to live passionately, to love completely, to learn humbly, and to leave boldly. Those were the main points, and doing those will help us live a life of no regrets. But there's something else I wanted to talk about today. Now, you won't find these points in the book. Uh, this is kind of my, this is my, own, my own takeaway from the series and study and things that really God has really convicted on me. And one of the big things that we did learn together was not waiting until we have 30 days left, right? 
That's the point of this book. If you found out you have 30 days left to live, what would you shift? But then the point is not waiting until that moment to make these shifts. Really living every day to the fullest as if you only had 30 days left to live. Now, we want to make sure that we're doing these things. We build relationships. We forgive others. We're good stewards of our finances. We live generously. And ultimately, we live a life for Jesus where we look back and we say, I did it. I gave it my everything. And one day, I get to stand before Jesus and hear those affirming words from him where he says, welcome, my good and faithful servant. You did it. Now, what we do with our lives, though, we take these principles. But I think that that if we take these and we do them for the wrong reasons, we say, all right, I'm going to do these for me, we kind of lose the, the focus on what the point is of this life anyways, right? we got to make sure the focus isn't on us, but really we're focused on God as we do these things, and that shifts the motive behind every decision that we make. And this series has caused me to do a lot of internal thinking and examining, and so I wanted to share with that with you today. So Matthew 5, starting in verse 13, it says this. You are the salt of the earth, but if the salt loses its saltiness, How can it be made salty again? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot. You are the light of the world. A town built on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand, and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. Now, we've talked about salt before here. You know, if you cook without salt, what happens to the food? It's bland, right? I mean, even, even baked goods like brownies and cookies, you forget to put the salt in there and it's, it's off. You can tell something's weird and wrong. But then again, you put too much salt in there and the food's not bland anymore, but it's disgusting. And so you you got to know that the balance. And there's a difference between cooking with salt versus putting salt on after. Salt has a multitude of uses when it comes to the culinary world. And I love that, that the word of God talks about how salt, we can be like salt, and we are the light of the world. But we don't want to lose our saltiness. We want to be able to, to bring something to the table, to not live a bland life, but bring a life that enhances someone's experience in this world to point it back to Jesus. And light, ultimately, light is a picture of radiance. It means we're not supposed to be secretive about this faith, right? Like you don't take a light, you don't put a bowl on top of it. When you're going to put out the light, two, you may melt your favorite bowl, right? You don't want to be someone who hides their faith but you want to be someone who is shining, someone who, in a dark room, what are you attracted to? The light. In a dark room, what are you afraid of? The darkness, that's me all the time. I hate the dark. I always look for a light. Full disclosure, I have a nightlight and I love it. I know when I close my eyes, it's dark, you can't see anyways, it doesn't matter. I need to be able to see something when I open my eyes. I need a little bit of light. But light is, is radiant, We're not supposed to be secret about the light in our life. We are called to be a light of the world. I think all too often we can take this and shift it the wrong way, where we can say, the world is so dark, I don't like this about the world, I hate this about the darkness, why is this happening? And instead of being a light to the world, we complain about the darkness. There's a shift, I think, that needs to happen there. Instead of being complainers, we need to be bringers of light instead of complainers about the dark. We need to be able to dispel the darkness because we obtain our light from something beyond us. And when we show light instead of complain, we are ultimately showing someone there is something better than the darkness. And that's what we want our lives to go. That's what our lives to do. Now, have you ever asked this question at all in in a church context? You say, all right, we're supposed to be the light of the world, but why isn't, fill in the blank, happening at church? Why isn't this happening in church? Why isn't revival happening at church? 
Why isn't the church doing this in the world? Why is, not, why is this not happening? And I, I get asked that often from different people about the church and, and not just like Celebration Church. Why is Celebration Church not doing this? But I get asked that question about the church, the, the capital C Worldwide Church. Why does the church not do this? Why does the church in the world not do this? I wanna see a revival in the church. I want revival to happen here and everywhere. And people ask, when is this revival gonna happen? When are we gonna see a renewed love for Jesus throughout the world? And I don't know if you guys followed the, the Asbury uh, revival that happened recently. Um, what state was the Asbury revival in? Okay, the Asbury revival, college campus. There was a worship service that started on February 4th and it went until February 24th, I believe. Nonstop, unplanned. It just happened. People continued to worship and students spoke and people spoke. But what's great about this, this revival is some celebrity pastors and celebrity worship leaders showed up and you know what they said? Hey, we wanna speak. And the students said, no, that's not what this is about. They didn't even give the celebrities the platform. It was just about praising God for over 20 days straight. That's a revival, that was awesome. It was so cool. And people say, why does that not happen in all churches everywhere? And I'm reminded of a story where, where it goes, a young man went to his older pastor and he said kind of that question. He said, pastor, why is there not revival happening in the church? Why is the church not doing this? I wanna see this happening. Can you please tell me why the church is not doing this? So the pastor looked at him and said, all right, take this piece of chalk. The pastor gave it to him. He said, Draw a circle around yourself. Just a young man draws, drew a circle around himself. He says, stand in the circle, so he does. And the pastor said, when revival happens inside this circle, it will then happen outside the circle. Look inside the circle first. And I think it's true. It's, it's amazing when, you, when you're involved in some of the greatest work on earth, when you're involved in it, not just as a spectator, but when you're letting God do a revival in your heart, you then start to bleed out and see it happening in other places. You then start to be a part of it. You're a participant in the work of God, not just a viewer of the word of God. And you can see and hear what God is doing in your life and in others' lives. There's something called the Westminster Shorter Catechism, and it was written in 1646 by the Westminster Assembly. And um, it, was, it was written to, to get greater conformity with the Church of England and the Church of Scotland, but it asks these questions. It's a great question. It says, what is the chief end of man? What is the chief end of man? And then the answer they came up with was this. Man's chief end is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. Man's chief end is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. And I think as I read through this book, it then prompted this question. Okay, so if we do these principles that we're talking about, how do we do this? And, and what does it mean to glorify God with your life? If our chief end is to glorify him, and this is how we want to live with the, these four things we talked about, how do we glorify God? How do, we, how do we amplify these? How do we execute these in everyday life? Glorifying God has to do with exalting, with, with praising and honoring and, and showing him the distinctive excellence of the subject of which this is spoken about. And I think if we want to apply these principles, there are some things about this life that we need to understand too. How do we glorify God when we all know this one fact, and this was a big fact of this series? Life is short. Life is very, very short. The life we have here on earth is going to be the shortest amount of time we spend anywhere. It's very, very short. We weren't called to just live a short life. We were called to live differently in this short life. We were called to live differently. We all suffer from the, the same condition. We all suffer from mortality. 100% death rate in the world. 
So how do we make the most of this time? How do we love God and love people to the fullest with no regrets taking these things on, but making sure God is the focus? And the first I wanna share with you today is this. When we do these things, make sure we are always focused, always focused on God's glory. Always focused on God's glory. 1 Corinthians 10.31 says, so whatever you eat or drink, whatever you do, do it for the glory of God. Now it doesn't say in some things that you do, in some things that you drink, whatever you do, do it for the glory of God. This is a, a pretty all-inclusive scripture on what you're doing with your life. Everything you do, do it for the glory of God. Now, you come to a place in life where you're so committed, this is when you come to a place in life where you're so committed to glorifying and honoring God in the minor and the mundane, in the insignificant and significant. It's everything you do, you realize I'm doing this and I'm doing it so people can see God in my life. Basically, you're saying, if you decide to go get a Big Mac and a Coke, you're doing it for the glory of God. Now, why you would choose a Big Mac and a Coke, I don't know. You choose McDonald's, you get a McTummy. It, that, that just, it follows. But truth is, even in those mundane things, picking where you're going to eat, just going to go see a movie, you can honor and glorify God with your life, even in the mundane things. And this doesn't mean that you're going to go to only Christian movies or eat only at Chick-fil-A. But it does mean that you're living your life with a greater awareness of those around you a greater awareness of the people in your atmosphere, the people you're gonna come across in these times, knowing that at any time you could be in a place where someone is going to see your action, your interaction, your conversation, and it could point them to or away from Christ. Whatever you're doing, knowing that you are glorifying God in it. People watch and see us more than we know. And if you have kids, you know that. If you have kids in school, you realize that they're influenced by the people around them. I was talking with Aurora recently, and she, you know, TV show, she goes, my friends are watching this TV show, can I watch it? I said, no, no, you cannot watch that TV show. And then uh, she goes, but dad, I already know all these things. I ride something to school called The Bus. Do you know what happens on The Bus? Said Aurora, I also rode The Bus to school. So yes, and that's why, no, you can't watch that show. People are aware of what we say and what we do. We can't discredit what happens around us and we're called to be a different person in those situations. We can just be living life, but even in those, where, no matter where you're at, you have a chance to glorify and honor God just by interacting in a godly way, whatever you're doing. People are watching. Let's give them something to watch. At the start of a new year and a new season of life, um, I, was, I, was, I get ask questions sometimes in, in a, new, a new year and just kind of a new season forces me. I, I ask myself these questions personally in my, my alone time and my journaling time. They're kind of evaluation points. And when, when, I, when I start something new, I, I ask myself this. Am I the same as I was a year ago? Am I the same as I was a year ago? Have I grown? Can I look back at myself and, and see significant changes in my life? Um, do I see what others see in me? Am I making progress physically? Am I making progress spiritually? Am I the same? I hope that I can say I'm not the same, that I've grown in great ways. How would I feel today if I stood before the Lord? If he called me right now, how would I feel when I stood before him? Do I live with the awareness that someday I'll be there and, and I've got to account for the things I've said? I've got to account for the things he gave me responsibility for. Do I get excited or do I get nervous? I want to make sure that I'm living a life where I get to stand before God one day and I get to be excited like, God, let's talk about my life. Let's talk about what I've done. I ask myself, is there anything this year that I should be doing that I'm not presently doing? What are some things God has called me to step out in? And then I ask myself the opposite. Is there anything I'm doing that I should not be doing? 
God, is, is there anything that, that keep me from shining your light? Is there anything that keep me from focusing on your glory? I want to make sure I'm focused on you. What do I do that takes me away from that? And something I ask myself, and this is a, a question that really gets me to think, I'll ask myself, is there anything I've done this year that pointed anyone away from you? Anything at all? Is there a conversation I had where someone would say, well, I don't think I want that anymore because of what the pastor said? I evaluate myself. This isn't about legalism, but it's about accountability. I, want, I think one of the worst things someone could ever say to me, the, one of the worst things that someone could ever say is, is I had no idea you were a Christian. I feel like that would be like a, a dagger to my heart. Like I, I want to live in a way where they know. At the same time, I don't want to be that annoying Christian that people, they see me coming, they go, oh, here comes the pastor. Oh, gosh. He's going to talk about Jesus, Bible, come to my church. I'm just annoyed. Oh, Jesus loves me. I, know. I, I don't want to be the annoying person, but I do want to live my life in a way where people know who I am and they know what I'm about, a, a way where, like the, the verse said, I'm living a life that is a light, that it's attractive to people, that they see my genuine heart and they see my love, and that causes them to ask, why are you this way? And I can say, because of him. I don't want to annoy them, but I want to love them, and I want them to be turned, I want them to be turned towards Jesus because of that love. I want my life to be an attractive light for Christ, and I want opportunities to share that faith in a way that's gonna inspire people to dive into his word. Do I believe, there's another question I ask myself, do I believe that my life is a force for the gospel? Am I living with a sense of purpose for going to God simply beyond going to church, simply beyond saying, hey, it's Sunday, I'm gonna go get a little inspiration, gonna, gonna spend some time with God, and then go on. Do I really feel like my life, God is going to use it for a strong purpose for his kingdom? And if I do believe that, am I acting on it? Am I living it? I think God is calling all of us to be a light for him, to glorify him before people, the small crowds, the large crowds, the, the, the large groups, small groups, whatever you're interacting with in life, God calls us to be a light. Even if those people seem very significant or insignificant, we're called to be a light. So I'll ask myself these things. I'll evaluate my life and I'll do a soul check, make sure that I'm living to the fullest that God has called me to be in shifting from an inward focus to an outward focus, first on him and then on everyone he's put me in, his, in, in my atmosphere, in my orbit, him and his people. Second is this, fortify your prayer life. You wanna, you wanna see God really start to do a number in your heart, spend some time with him. Spend some time talking to him. Build that relationship with him. I don't want God to be a friend that I talk to once every few months or once when things get hard. I want God to be the person that's like, God, here's my day. Here's what's happening in my life. Here's what happened 10 minutes ago, God. I know you saw it, but I gotta talk about it. Fortify your prayer life. It's a, prayer is one of the biggest weapons we have in our arsenal, but I think as Christians, sometimes it is the least accessed weapon that we go to. It's often something we fall down to instead of presenting forward in the first place. John 14, 13 says, and I will do whatever you ask in my name so that the Son may bring glory to the Father. I love that. I will do whatever you ask in my name so that the Son may bring glory to the Father. This is a great scripture, but I don't want people to, to twist the scripture around. Sometimes people will say, well, I prayed in Jesus' name, so that's like my magic phrase now to where because I said in Jesus' name, it is going to happen. God is not genie. I love Aladdin, but God is not genie. He doesn't just grant your every wish. God is not Santa Claus. God, this, Jesus is the son of God. He is bigger than all that. He has perfect timing. Saying Jesus' name is not a magic formula, but, but I, I, I've heard people say this before, specifically my kids. Avery and Aurora one day came up to me. It was very cute and very scary. They said, Dad, we want a brother. I said, 
great. Put it on your list. Things I want. Right under the world, right? Just put it on your list. We want a brother. And, and I said, well, kids, my phrase now, as I say, it'd be a medical miracle. Can't happen. Medical miracle. And Avery, my six-year-old, she goes, Dad, well, we prayed about it. And Jesus can do anything. And I was like, well, I rebuke that name, or that, that, I rebuke that line, because I know Jesus can do anything, but no, we're not having kids, any more kids, but, but she, she believed it. She said, in Jesus' name, we prayed for this. And it was so cute to hear, but, but in, the, in a serious note, people will say that, in Jesus' name, and then they, they say, because I said it, he will do these things. But, but the thing about this is that that's twisting the, the context of why we say, in Jesus' name. If we fortify our prayer life, I want us to say in Jesus' name. I want us to declare who he is. But the focus of asking in his name is so that he works and he gets the glory beyond our desire and beyond our answer. He is in charge, right? The focus is asking that when we pray, believing and knowing, Father, I ask this because I believe Jesus would be asking these same things for my life. You gotta get your heart in line with what God's heart is for your life. That's why we pray and invoke Jesus' name. The key is that not only do we do those things that Jesus would pray for and ask for, but we ask to bring glory to him. And when we do this, it builds confidence and it fortifies our prayer life because we're believing in who he is and we want what he wants for us. So then the question is this, who and what is currently on your prayer list? Who is what is currently on your prayer list? I strongly recommend write down your prayer list. Write down, God, God, I'm asking for these things in my life. Keep a record of it. When someone says, hey, pray for me in this area, write it down. Who are you praying for? Prayer is powerful. And it also, keeps, I think, keeps us uh, focused on going before the Lord and then evaluating. When you have a prayer list, you can evaluate. All right, God, is my prayer list for my glory or is this for your glory? Is this my glory or your glory? Look at it and make sure other people's needs are on your prayer list. I don't think I can stress that enough. Something Paul says in so many of his letters, he says, pray for me as I pray for you. He consistently is saying, I'm praying for you. I'm praying Jesus would do this for you. I'm praying that God would do this in your churches, in your lives. There is so much power in prayer. Make sure that we're not just saying, God, do this, me, 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 me. Make sure we're saying, God, here's my atmosphere. Here's my community. Here's my friends. God, here's what I need. For, here's what they need. Put your will onto these things. Pray for other people. There is power in prayer. So many times in scripture, we see people in group A praying and people in group B's lives get changed. Pray for other people. We also need to foster a maturing faith. Foster a maturing faith. Romans 4, 20 and 21 says, he did not waver through unbelief regarding the promise of God, but was strengthened in his faith and gave glory to God, being fully persuaded that God had power to do what he had promised. Now, this has to do with trusting God in the difficult and seemingly impossible situations. This is where you're asking God and trusting for some things that only he can do. Praying for things that only he can do. This is like the Abraham and Sarah things, right? You're 100 years old. Your reproductive system is done. It's barren. It is impossible to have a God. Physiologically, done. But then God says, but now I get to do something. And he shows how he is God and we are not. God promised him a child. Their faith was firm. They stayed fixed on him. They stayed fixed on his promises. They didn't consider the frailties of the flesh. They focused on the faithfulness of God. And God always, as he does, followed through. So what promises are we believing for? What are you believing for in your life? Are you believing that a dead marriage is resurrected? Are you praying for spiritually lost children? Are you believing for friends to receive new life? 
believing for a turn in barren finances, physical healing, new ministry opportunities. What are you believing for where you would say this would be an act of God and believing that God will act? You may be in a place where you're wondering why God's promises haven't been fulfilled. I know that I could ask almost anybody here, what are you believing for? What are you praying for? And some of you could even say, I've been praying for this for years and I'm just waiting for God to answer. Well, I want, you to, I want to encourage you in this. Take hope that knowing there's often a time gap between the promise of God and the performance of God. There's often a time gap between the promise of God and the performance of God in these areas in our lives. But it takes faith to take our eyes off of our limitations and put them on the one who is limitless because I truly believe this, that in those times where we're waiting, God is preparing you for what he has prepared for you. God is preparing you for what he has prepared for you and that takes time. And who doesn't live inside our time and knows the perfect time? God does. God's preparing you for what he has already prepared for you. There are two things in life, I believe, when we, when we understand faith and, and putting faith and trust in God's timing. There's two things that I believe God does not have to explain. We would like to know the answer, but I think God needs to explain these things. He doesn't need to explain how he's going to make things happen. He doesn't, we, he doesn't need to explain how he's going to do it, and he doesn't need to explain when he's going to do it. Doesn't need to explain how, doesn't need to know when. He is always on time. He doesn't answer to our calendar, doesn't answer to our agenda. In John chapter 11, Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead when everybody thought it was too late. Lazarus was dead, he was gone. But Jesus' timing was that he could do something to show that power of God was at work, not the power of man. He told Martha, through this, if you have faith, you will see the glory of God. Because he went to a moment where it was impossible for any person to do anything, and he showed the glory of God. A maturing faith, when we grow in our faith, it doesn't have to have all the answers. It doesn't have to have the answers to believe and to trust. He wants us to have a faith, that's birth, a faith that births contentment and confidence in the midst of all the stuff that we go through. A faith that makes us understand that he is still in charge. And a real key to maturing faith is I, I find that faith really matures and grows in the moments where we could turn to fear, but instead of turning to fear, we turn to God instead. That's where our faith can grow. That's where we can mature and see that he's in charge. Sometimes we may think that our faith, we, we may say moments like, well, you know what? Abraham was such a pillar and beacon of faith. My faith does not line up with his. I, I can't compare to the faith that he had. Or people in the Bible in general, it did amazing things. You, you can look at it and say, there's no way I can believe like that. I just, I just don't have that kind of faith. Well, I, I don't think that's true at all. I think we all do and can have that faith. Romans 4.23 says, the words it was credited to him were written not for him alone, but for us also, to whom God will credit righteousness. For us who believe in him who raised Jesus our Lord from the dead, he was delivered over to death for our sins and was raised to life for our justification. So what this is saying is if we believe, we believe that Jesus was raised from the dead and you don't have a doubt in your mind about it, you believe this to be true, you have the same faith these people in scripture had. They believed that God would do things that were impossible for man to do. They believed it and they lived it. So when we have this faith, we say, God died for me and he did not stay that he rose from the dead. You are showing the same faith of people in the Bible. So be encouraged. Be encouraged that you have faith in God. Does our faith waver and fluctuate in scary times? Yes, that's humanity. That's humanity right there. We struggle, we question, but we believe that Jesus did what he did. That is a strong belief. Don't sell yourself short on your faith. You believe one of the biggest miracles in history. Jesus died for you and rose for you. 
in this life, remember to forsake times to disobey. Forsake the times to disobey. In John 21, it says, Jesus said this to indicate what kind of death by which the pastor, by which Peter would glorify God. Then he said to him, follow me. Jesus said this to indicate by which kind of death Peter would glorify God. Then he said, follow me. If you want to bring, a, if you want to bring glory to God, you want to bring a person who brings glory to God, then be someone who wants to obey him and follow him in every way. There was a little bit happening with, with Peter right here. See, Jesus was, was calling Peter to be a distinctive voice. Peter was concerned about what was happening with John. You see this a couple times in scripture. They're kind of comparing each other and, well, God, well, Jesus, who's really gonna do this? And Jesus calls Peter. He says, I want you to be a distinctive voice. And he says, Peter, I'm, not, I'm concerned with you at this time, not John. And Peter, I want you to be concerned with Peter, not John. But Peter, be concerned with Peter. Peter, don't worry about John. I've got other things in line for John. I've got things in line for you. Be concerned with yourself. I think sometimes when we're, we're disobedient and we're not focused on God's glory, we start looking around us and we start looking at what other people have, what other people believe, what other people deserve, and we start saying, I deserve that. I, I, I want that, right? That, that there's, they don't go to church as much as I do. How come I'm not getting that? Right? We, we start the, the compare game, right? We, we look at a couple and think, they've, they've, or we look at someone and we say, they've got it made, why do, they, why do they have it made? They've, I don't feel like they're doing things they should, but man, they've just resources and work and business and family. This is, things are great for them. Why is it so hard for me? It is so easy to do that in life. So easy to start playing the compare game and the blame game and, and looking at other people and saying, why do they have it, but I don't? But note what happens to John now. Peter was comparing himself to John, saying, you know what? How come John gets this? How, I, I, I want to kind of live, Jesus, look at me. What Peter didn't know was what was going to happen to John. Now, there was, there was a man named Irenaeus who was a disciple of Polycarp, who was also a disciple of John, and he wrote this on the history of John. John ministered in Jerusalem and then moved to Rome, the capital of the Roman Empire, where he experienced extreme persecution. And enemies of the gospel attempted to kill him by poisoning him. This is the reason why in church records, um, when you see a symbol of John, it's a chalice actually with snakes emerging from within because John was poisoned but he survived. He probably had some really, really, really bad visits in the restroom, but he survived. Caesar Nero had John placed in a vat of hot oil and he was severely burned and boiled, but he survived. Peter was in exile to the island of Patmos where, he, where the most perverted and horrible prisoners were exiled to and he had to go live there for years, a rocky, barren island and they chose Patmos because the Romans thought this, if hell was gonna be a real place on earth, this island was hell on earth and they sent him there to be exiled. Yet it was here that John received the book of Revelation. Now, this helps me because was Peter's concerned about, man, why can't I just be more like him? Peter had no idea what John was about to go through, what John would go through, and how would his vision or a desire change if he said, Jesus, I want what Peter wants. Okay, you're gonna get poisoned, boiled, exiled, and then you go, actually, God changed my mind. You know, I don't want that. I want this instead. But what Jesus says, you know, Peter, <clears throat> but Peter didn't know is that he was also going to be a pillar. He was also going to reach other people. He would also have his own problems. Jesus, you could have, Jesus didn't say to Peter, you're asking about John? Here's the scoop. You're actually gonna be martyred for your faith too, Peter. Jesus didn't tell him this, but what if Jesus said this? You're gonna be martyred for your faith. You're gonna be crucified and you're gonna go to heaven. Now, you're gonna be crucified, but John's also gonna be poisoned, boiled, exiled, beaten, tortured. So, so take your pick, Peter. What do you wanna do? Right? What would we say? If we asked God, God, what do you have in store for me? Well, 
You're going you're gonna to be remembered. You're going to change lives. But at the same time, you're going to be poisoned, boiled, beaten. Like, would you tell God, all right, I'm still in? Or would you say, actually, God, hold the phone. What's plan B? <laughs> what, what can I do to get to the end but go around what you have? But the truth is, if you want to get to God's, what he has for you, you've got to go through what he has for you. You've got to let him use the situations you're going to go through so he can develop and grow and strengthen you for what he has prepared for you. It all comes with us being obedient and following him. Don't be disobedient. Don't compare yourselves to others. Follow him. Don't say, poor me. Say, God, use me. The next is forearm yourselves with God's word. 2 Thessalonians 3.1 says, Finally, brothers, pray for us that the word of the Lord may spread rapidly and be glorified just as it did also with you. Let, let the word run free course through your life. I can't express enough how, how important it is to read your Bible every day. Spend some time in God's word and let it change you. Let it move through you. Let God speak to you through his word. Paul says this is where it starts. And once it starts there, it can start to pour out of you and start spread to those around you. Let your life move on without restriction. I think it's important to be a student of the word, but also let the word study you. Let the word of God reveal things to you about yourself that maybe you didn't know because you weren't spending time in it. Give, the, give God the freedom to dig through your life. Give God the freedom to speak into your life, to probe, to redirect, to challenge, to change, to know that when I start reading this, I'm not gonna be the same person because of it. Let it work in your life. You know what the largest selling books in the world are every year? Not just, not just the Bible, like the Bible is like the all-time bestseller, but in general, every year, what the number one selling genre of books are every year? Self-help books. Self-help books, you know, this, this is how to better your life. This is how to better your finances. This is how to better your emotions. And I'm not, I'm not dogging self-help books. I, I read some of them and I read leadership books and I, I like them, I like the principles, but there's something that happens with self-help books. Every few years, guess what happens? There's a new one. And it maybe even contradicts the last one that was really good. And this one's even better. And they're, they're both good, but self-help books, they, they come and they go and there's, there's good things in them. And some of them I read and I actually don't like them. But just in saying, they, they are the number one selling book and they're, they're not all bad. But you know, they, they can become quickly outdated. We have right here the best self-help book ever. And it will never be outdated. It will never change. The word of God stands forever. Isaiah 40 verse eight says that. Grass withers and flowers fade, but the word of God stands forever. This book will never change. It has stood the test of time. It will continue to stand the test of time. There was a French philosopher and writer. I, I'm not French, I can't pronounce his name. If I wanna say it like the American I am, it's Voltaire, but it's probably Voltaire, the French writer. He was a deep thinker and he was known as a rival of Sir Isaac Newton. And he called Isaac Newton a doddering fool because Newton's contention, he said, there was one day be men who traveled around the world. But Voltaire said that this was impossible. But Isaac Newton actually said people would travel around the world, but you know where he got that thought from? The book of Daniel. The book of Daniel says that men would go to and fro. It was an idiom for global travel. So Isaac Newton, believing in the book of Daniel, said people will travel around the globe. Voltaire called him a fool, said it would never happen because if you wanted to travel around the world, you would have to travel at speeds that would stop your heart from beating. Well, he was wrong. People travel around the world every day. There are people that are on planes going all over the place. He was wrong. He was also wrong about something else. On his deathbed in 1778, he made a very bold declaration about the Bible. 
He said the Bible in 100 years will be outdated. It will only be found in museums. It will only be found in library archives, and it will be irrelevant to the day. How fitting was it that his house was purchased by a European Bible society and to this day purchases and produces thousands of Bibles? It's irony at its best, right? The question, though, is are you living in the word? Are you letting the word mold you? Are you letting the word shape you? Because it goes beyond the, the four principles we learned about. If those aren't centered on the word, we're missing a big, the biggest piece of the puzzle. Let the word motivate you. Let God push you and challenge you and change you. Are you living in certain patterns that bring glory to God? It's not going to happen around you until it happens in you. Let it happen in you. And the next is this. Form a life of fruitfulness. John 15, 8 says, This is my, to my Father's glory that you bear much fruit, showing yourselves to be my disciples. We were not just shown to live for ourselves. We were shown to bear fruit and give that fruit to other people. Let the fruit pour out of your life to help a starving world. See, there, there's a hungry and hurting world out there. You just drive down the street, you can see people that need Jesus. You don't have to look far. People need Jesus. But where there's a hurting, hungry world out there, our lives can be like branches where God is literally saying, hey, you can feed this person, you can feed that person. I'm not talking about physical food. I'm talking about the fruit of the Spirit that pours out of your heart. We can feed people. We can be a light for people. We allow Jesus to come into our lives. We partake in the goodness of God and we share and allow other people to partake in the goodness of God. Psalms 34, 8 says, taste and see that the Lord is good. When people see our lives, are they doing, getting a little taste of Jesus? Are they seeing that the Lord is good? In Galatians 5, and 23, are they tasting these things? The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control. Against these things, there is no law. You know, a tree, when it, when it grows fruit, you know what it's not doing? It's not feeding itself. A tree does not grow fruit to feed itself. A tree or a plant grows fruit to feed those around it. If we want to be producing fruit, we're not producing fruit just for ourselves. We're producing fruit for those around us. I remember growing up, um, our neighbor had a cherry tree. This was a big, awesome cherry tree. It had a branch that came right over the fence, right into our yard. And my brothers and I, we would look at this thing every year. And there was one year where we decided to get bold. We're like, let's go steal the cherries. So we went over and we're trying to be, I mean, it's our neighbor. He could clearly see us over the fence, but we're back there. We're trying to pick cherries and we got caught. And I remember when he was like, hey guys, and he was an awesome guy, but he was like, you know, hey, Dustin, Josh, Joel. It was like, busted. He caught us. He was like, what are you doing? Nothing. As our faces are all, you know, stained with cherry juice and there's pits all around. And, you know, we were kids. There's cherries everywhere. And we were like, you guys, you want some cherries? Like, can we? And you, at that point, it's kind of the, you know, like, oh, we've got to face the music now. We were stealing cherries. He goes, that tree is on your side of the fence. It's not stealing. Please help yourselves. This tree is for you as well. Have some. That's, res that's resonated with me for years. I mean, even to this day, because I want my life to be a tree where it's not just I'm just producing things for me. I'm living life for me. I'm doing this for me. I'm, I'm making sure I'm following God so I can feel good. I want to make sure that what I'm producing is for those around me. People get to see, people get to experience, people get to partake in everything God's doing in me and I'm sharing it with those around me. Establish fruit. And how do you do that? And John 15, or John 15, 4 says, 
Naturally, you'll produce it, and also supernaturally by walking with and abiding in Jesus. I mean, when you walk through a, an orchard, <clears throat> you know what you also don't hear? You don't hear trees grunting. You don't hear trees straining. You don't go, oh man, this tree is working really hard. Put your ear on that trunk and hear it producing fruit. It just does it. You know why it does it? The fruit is growing. You don't have to put your ear up to the fruit and go, grow strong little fruit. And you'll hear it go, okay. And it starts, you don't hear those things. The fruit grows, the fruit produces because it's connected to the tree. We will produce fruit. We will be able to show people love of Jesus when we are connected to him. Stay connected to him. Let God grow that fruit in your life and share it with those around you. Let people see and experience that God is good. Stay connected to him. Are we obeying him? Are you living for him? And that's how we will form a life of fruitfulness and faithfulness that will bring glory to him in everything we do. I'd like to, um, as we come to a close this morning, I'd like to invite the worship team up. And also, um, I, I thought that it would be a fitting way to end this One Month to Live series by sharing communion with each other. And so um, on your chairs, there's, there's a little communion cup and let's prepare for communion. Just want to encourage you all. If you, if you have a question about what we've talked about this past five or six weeks, if there's something in your life you say, God, I, I need you to, to, to take this from me. God, I want to give this to you. God, I need to step more into you. Um, I'd love to have a conversation with you about it. If you're online and you're listening today, you can click on the button for prayer. You can shoot me an email, Dustin at ccpualop.com. I'd love to connect with you. But, but don't leave here today saying, oh, there, there, was, there was some challenges made, but I'm just going to go on with life as normal. Make a switch, make a change. Let, let God infuse his word and his life into you and know that the things we've talked about, living passionately, loving completely, learning humbly, leaving boldly, these are all great things. And I want us all to do those. But to do those, stay connected to God. Let him be the focus, let him be the reason. Amen. I'd like to invite you to stand with me as we do this together. Um, communion. Jesus at the Last Supper, he, he took some ordinary things. He took a, a piece of bread and he said, this is my body that's broken for you. Take and eat in remembrance of me. And, and when we take communion, what we're doing is we're, we're believing that what Jesus did is not just a one-time deal. He didn't just die and disappear. He died and he's coming back. And his body paid the price for our sins. It broke so that we don't have to break. He took the punishment. He took the consequence. And he said, I'm doing this because I love you. So every time we, we take this bread together, remember, Jesus' body took the place on that cross so our bodies don't have to be on that cross. He paid the price for our sins. So what I want to do is I want to give you just a minute just to, to we can stand in silence. You can say a short prayer by yourself, but just a minute to, to think about and thank God for what he did, what his body went through as a punishment for our sins. God, I thank you for your body, the body that was broken and put on that cross for us. God, and when we eat this, we declare that, that you will return. You are the son of God. You conquered death and you beat it, saving us from the ultimate fate of death. We thank you for your sacrifice, Jesus. Amen. So you eat the bread. In the same meal, he took wine. We have juice. But he took wine and he said, this is my blood poured out for you. Take and drink and remember, remember me. 
Jesus' blood did what no other blood could do. In the Old Testament, people would sacrifice an animal and that blood would be the atonement. It would be the, would be the covering of their sin. Jesus' blood was different because his blood doesn't cover sin. His blood washes out sin. Erases it. It's no longer there. And only his blood, only this perfect sacrifice could do that. He shed every drop of his for us. So in the same, same vein, I would like you guys to just have a moment of silence as we thank God for his perfect blood that he shed for us to wash away our sins. Jesus, I thank you for your perfect sacrifice. The, the blood that did what only your blood could do. God, wash away our sins and make us, make us pure in the eyes of God. God, we receive your forgiveness. We receive your love. And I thank you again for the sacrifice you laid so that we, we don't have to suffer the eternal death, the, what we deserve for our sins. God, but we get to be with you because of what you shed for us. We thank you. We love you. Amen. We get to go be the light of the world. Before, uh, before I go off, I want to share one more quick story with you. My wife said something very profound to me one time. It's the middle of the night. I forget why I got up, but I was fumbling through things. And I stubbed my toe, and I'm trying to be quiet, but I'm being loud. And I, I hit my toe, I hit my leg, I stepped on, it probably was a Lego because I have kids, and that hurts more than anything. But I'm fumbling through the darkness, and my wife said the most amazing, amazing thing ever. She said, Dustin, turn on the light. Turn on the light. Words of wisdom. We get to turn on the light. We get to go be the light of the world. That's exciting. When we leave here today, that's, that's what, I, what I hope you take when you leave today. When you leave, turn on the light. Be the light of the world. Be the fruit of the Spirit. Let people see Jesus in everything you say and you do. Amen.